You're listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life. I'm your host, Justin Vakula, with episode 88, Discussion with Caleb Antiveros. We talk about parallels between games and life, mindfulness meditation, frugality, and much more. Caleb is the creator of the app Stoa, which blends mindfulness meditation and Stoic philosophy, available now for iPhone and Android devices. Learn more at stoameditation.com. Enjoy our discussion. All right. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Justin. First, to start our discussion, how did you discover Stoicism? I studied philosophy um, in undergrad and grad school for some amount of time, but I actually discovered Stoicism through a book by a fellow named Nassim Taleb. Uh, he wrote a book called Anti-Fragile mm-hmm. and described the Stoics as being Buddhists with an attitude. And that description was pretty powerful to me. I was also really struck by his idea in the book about being anti-fragile. You know, a lot of people focus on being resilient, you know, being able to survive stress, whereas being anti-fragile is being able to use stress to your advantage. As I turned to the Stoics, I found that idea was, uh, you know, it was one of the first places where it appeared um, and, it, and it really struck a chord with me. Um, so I spent more time, you know, huh. visiting all all the you know famous philosophers, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus, and so forth. Ah, so you heard of his reference, then went to the classics from there, and then you became more involved with the Stoic community, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's how the, that's how the path went. Yeah, so in particular, I read a number of the second a lot of the secondary literature stuff by Pierre Hadot, Donald Robertson, some of the more popular stuff by Ryan Holiday and so forth, and found it a very useful philosophy to apply to my life. And what were some of the I, concepts or practices that you found the most appealing? How do you use Stoicism in your everyday life? I like to think about the upshot of Stoicism for me is on one level, on installing particular thought patterns. So something that's quite useful for Stoicism for me there is uh, just being like very vigilant about seeing things as they are mm-hmm. without adding unnecessary value judgments. Mm-hmm. And then on the level of practice, there's a very specific practice by made explicit by the French philosopher Pierre Hedo called the view from above. And this involves sort of stepping back from your egocentric perspective on the world and senior place inside a much larger system. So whether that system is initially your city, your nation, the world, uh, across different time spans, I find, you know, stepping outside of yourself in that way, either through, you know, visualizations or through meditation can help clarify what is really important and can help you like shed yourself of much more trivial concerns. Right. And Stoicism calls for us to make a distinction between events and our judgments about them, right? Many people will see the same thing happen. One might see it as an opportunity. One might see it as an obstacle. Some might say that's terrible. Some might have a different opinion about it, right? Yeah, exactly. So I guess this is where the idea of anti being anti-fragile struck a chord with me. You know, uh, Marcus Aurelius has a well-known line, that goes something like the impediment to action uh, advances action, but stands in the way becomes the way. And to me, that meant, you know, simply seeing things as they are, 
not needing to make additional value judgments about those events, something like, you know, whether it was uh, receiving a poor mark in class or something like this, you know, uh, I received a poor mark in class. You don't need to make, tell yourself additional stories about, oh, this means that uh, I'm terrible at logic mm -hmm. or something like this. Right. And we could use this as an opportunity to learn, to grow and take accountability for what happened rather than blaming others or saying the situation is an impossible one, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. It could be easy for someone to say, oh, the test was too difficult. The teacher was unfair. But some others might look at it and say, I need to re-engage with the material. Maybe I could have studied harder. And people can very often blame others and not look to improve. Yeah, of course. So, you know, you might think, oh, I got a poor uh, mark on this uh, piece. And then instead of losing yourself in maybe like a negative uh, thought spiral or something like this about how, oh, this means, say, it was a logic class, uh, that I am terrible at logic, will never be good at logic mm -hmm. and so forth. You might think, okay, well, concretely, how much time did I spend preparing? What did I do poorly on? Are there things that I can do better next time? You see, you can even use your failure as motivation in a way. Mm -hmm. The fact that you had a poor mark in your exam is something that's external to you, right? It's not, once you have finished taking the exam, it's out of your control how that is handled. And what you can do is focus on, okay, of the things that are under my control, how, how might I do, how might I do better next time? Right. It's in Epictetus, one of my favorite verses. He talks about imitating those who play at dice. There are a lot of these analogies between games and life that were to make the best effort we can and recognize that which is outside of our control. We could focus on the process rather than the result. That's the best we can really do in so many areas of life. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think you did a, a podcast on poker recently and poker is a very nice example right, of right. this where when you are playing poker, Initially, you might find yourself in a situation where you have a, a, a terrible hand and you do the right thing and you fold that hand. And then you see uh, the flop comes, first three cards are revealed, and you think, oh man, there, there are my cards right there. <laughs> yes. Uh, and you might think, oh, I never I should have folded. <laughs> yeah, I made a terrible mistake. But the fact of the matter is, no, like what, when you play poker, you want to you know, maximize the expected value of your plays over the long run, mm -hmm. which is basically it means playing the best given the cards you have. And the fact that uh, you folded your cards and it just so happened that you would have had, you know, the best hand on the board or something like this is irrelevant. You know, over the, you want to make the plays that are the best over the long run. Um, and I, I think uh, that's a very useful way to think about you know, the, the, the different stoic teachings. Right. And in life, it's having our focus on the right things because people will ruminate on that and they'll talk about all things like, oh, I sat down at the wrong table or this person took this seat and look at all the money they won. And, oh, if I would have held on to that, I would have got this result or they get their money in with the best hand and then they just happen to lose, right? And they really, really put themselves in a, a poor position doing that as uh, some people even talk about people going on tilt where they start to play a really substandard game and really start leaking money. Yeah, exactly. So I guess there's the two upshots for this is like one on when you're making decisions, you want to make the, you know, the best decision you can given the information you have and follow the sorts of rules that give you those kinds of outcomes. 
And then on another level, there's, there's a psychological upshot to this, which is that sometimes when you do that, it, you will you basically lose a game. You will lose your money. Uh, or it seems like things might go south. Um, but again, you know, that's a fact that is uh, out of your control and something I think you, you can build uh, resilience to and, and learn to accept. Stoicism calls us to, to take the long view of things that, well, there might be a day where we had a difficult time, there might be some element of suffering, but overall, we can have a more positive attitude of life, we could find joy, we could find fulfillment, recognizing that not every day is going to be a festival or a picnic. Yes, yep. Yeah, sometimes life life is hard, even when we do the right thing. Yes, and that's, I think, one of the big benefits of stoicism to try to get us through those trying times. How can we conceptualize? How can we have a realistic attitude about things? So many will just give up. They'll say, I, I can't improve things. Life is terrible. And they just have the sense of perhaps learned helplessness, or they don't make any more effort to improve. Perhaps they're blaming others. Perhaps they think they can't change. But many people have found benefits from stoicism. Personally, yeah, personally, I found it to be exceptionally useful for clarifying uh, my thought about a variety of different things. Um, and just in particular, this idea that one has control over how one may respond to events. There's the external events, and before losing oneself in the fact that going back to the poker analogy you lost money you think okay i lost money do i now need to make the additional value judgment that the fact that i lost money is bad or that i need to make the value judgment that oh i lost money because the dealer is out to get me <laughs> yeah. usually 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 you don't Right. So making making the best decisions we can and trying to keep that mental clarity to keep the focus on the right things. And with mental clarity, you link stoicism and meditation. Uh, probably about two years ago now, I realized that I've been meditating for quite some time since high school. I hadn't made an explicit link between stoic practice and meditation. And I had used a number of different meditation courses, meditation apps, and it occurred to me that some of the main Stoic teachings, uh, in particular, like the core Stoic disciplines, fit very nicely with meditation practice. Meditation is, in a way, a gym to practice these uh, core Stoic disciplines. Right. And w with the Stoic disciplines, can you clarify for listeners about those? Yeah, absolutely. So... Three core Stoic disciplines that I'm thinking of um, following uh, the interpretation of Stoicism from Pierre Hadot is the discipline of judgment, sometimes also called the discipline of assent, the discipline of desire, and the discipline of action. The discipline of judgment involves uh, seeing the world as it is without adding these unnecessary value judgments. The discipline of desire involves sort of relegating your desire to what is under your control and what is external. It also involves, though it's called the discipline of desire, how we um, deal with aversions uh, or things we, we find uncomfortable. Again, a lot of what we find uh, to be uncomfortable or, or what we are averse to is really like outside of our control. So the, the, the main idea of this discipline is to relegate your desires 
and aversions to what is in control. And for Stoics, that amounts to really broadly your judgments about the world and then actions you can take. And then finally, the last Stoic discipline is the discipline of action, which involves cultivating virtuous character for Stoics. Uh, and this involves you know, the, Stoic, the four Stoic virtues of courage, temperance, uh, wisdom, and justice. For me, when, so maybe I'll just step back a little bit and say a little bit more about the meditation practice I have in mind. I came from a meditation practice which uh, involved sitting and noticing the breath and sensation. The thought is to simply notice sensations as they come by, see them as they are, and try to focus on maybe sensations moving through your body, um, focus on the movement of your breath as thoughts come by, recognizing that you have a particular thought, that you need not do anything with it, so you can recognize it as a thought without getting wrapped up in that thought. And I think this is the sort of thing that uh, makes much more sense uh, with a few uh, meditation uh, sessions. You have this practice of sitting and simply watching sensations and, and thoughts. And as you do this, you notice that a lot of thoughts we have are not um, immediately under control, under your control. It's very difficult to say, remain focused on the breath for more than 10 seconds. <laughs> yes. uh, it sounds easy, but it's exceptionally hard. You can use this, I think, to practice the discipline of desire, right? So as you focus on the breath, eventually you will notice your attention wandering. And an obvious reaction to that might be some sort of frustration, right? Like you want to be the kind of person who can focus on their breath for more than 10 seconds. It seems like it should be easy. You can notice that as you your attention wanders, that that is a thing that happened. The fact that your attention wandered is now out of your hands and you can simply return to the breath and by repeatedly doing an action like this you can build the ability to notice this sort of this in initial impression and then return to the task at hand so this is you know one way in which a meditation practice is uh, exceptionally useful for practicing the discipline of desire. Mm -hmm. And a good amount of patience, courage, and humility, I suppose, would go with that too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, initially quite difficult. It, you know, I've been meditating since high school and I still have sessions where I find it to be very difficult to focus on my breath for five seconds, let alone 10 seconds. That sort of that regular practice does take a good amount of discipline and planning. I think, you know, another aspect to this is before meditating, I think it's important to have a framework for why you are engaged in the practice. You know, the Stoics talk a lot about having a, a, you know, a purpose for your actions and being explicit about, you know, the values you are, you are endorsing when you act. So, you know, Seneca in particular has a line about it goes something like man who has no destination in mind uh, while sailing, no wind will be favorable for him. Uh, he does not know where he is going. In the same manner, when you, when you sit to practice meditation, you might ask yourself, okay, why am I doing this? 
for my cases uh, to practice the Stoic discipline. And, you know, in that way, you are in and of itself practicing, uh, you know, the, the discipline of action, having clear purposes. And it allows you to focus on the present moment, as that's a common theme in Stoicism, not putting your thoughts too far into the future and certainly not into the past, because that's also something that's largely outside of our control, particularly the past. One of the core ideas of meditation is to just be whatever is there in the present. And you will notice your mind wandering to the past, to the future, but over time, be much more um, aware of now as opposed to all these matters that are outside of your control. Right. It's a lot of ideas that people might have about the future. Oh, how will things turn out if I do this? What if I do that? Where we want to be cautious. We want to think about what we do before we do it, especially if it's a big commitment, it's a risk that we want to take on. But so many people could spend forever getting started, not take any risks, or be hobbled by, say, what they think other people would think about them, not doing the things in life that they would want. Right, right. Yeah. So that point, you know, you it's easy to catch oneself ruminating about these hypothetical scenarios where that has to do with others' judgments, mm -hmm. other uh, unfortunate things that might happen in the future. And it's useful to have the reminder that those things are outside of your current scope and the ability to sort of, you know, just return your attention to what is present, what matters now. You know, Epictetus talks a lot about this idea of just being vigilant about applying the, the you know the discipline of desire. You know, he thought this was, this is the first discipline one should get right, and you know, in, in nearly every present moment, being aware of what is in your control and what is not. Yeah, the want the want of fame, the want of approval, all of these things. They, they shouldn't be a, of great concern, as Stoicism tells us to live with a virtuous character, that if we act in good faith, we make the right decisions, we properly apply virtue, that's what should be of primary concern. So with meditation, do you have other practices that you suggest, or perhaps passages that you read from the Stoic author? One thing that is especially useful about Stoicism is that it provides both what I think of as cognitive and non-cognitive practices, where the cognitive practices involve being uh, thinking explicitly, rationally about particular matters, and then the non-cognitive involve things like this mindfulness meditation, which doesn't have so much to do with thinking explicitly, let's say coming up with a plan, but is much more about uh, in installing particular thought patterns. You know, when I notice becoming distracted, return to the breath. When I notice becoming distracted, return to the presence. Mm -hmm. Other exercises that I think, you know, both of these exercises are quite, are exceptionally useful. So on the cognitive side, practices like premeditatio malorum or negative visualization can be quite useful. So either, you know, the thought is imagine if you want to practice, there are a number of different reasons you might practice exercise. One might be to increase uh, your feelings of gratitude. To do that, you might take some of your most uh, cherished belongings and imagine they are no longer present. Mm -hmm. As you do that and just sit in that world for a while, you might find that your sense of gratitude for things, the fact that you have those things, increases. 
So this is uh, one, one reason why you might imagine undergoing this practice. And you can see why it might be called negative visualization because you're imagining what initially seems like quite a bad thing. You lose most of your cherished possessions in this, in this hypothetical world. Right. Another great aspect about negative visualization is that it can be quite useful for planning. So I think for me, this is uh, another very important upshot of stoicism is that when one comes up with a plan for, say, what one would like to do for a given week, what one would like to do for a given day, uh, one can imagine uh, things going, how might things go wrong? Where am I making assumptions uh, about, you know, how fast particular things will take me, how particular people will respond, and so forth. And if you sit for some amount of time, either thinking or writing through a particular plan, you'll notice that uh, by doing you know this exercise and asking yourself questions like, okay, suppose this plan failed, why would it fail? Or, you know, how can, how might things go awry? You'll find that your plans can be a lot more uh, reliable and useful. Right. Rather than just randomly doing things, acting on impulse, a lot of ways people just happen to go about, oh, it feels good, so I'll just go with it, right? These aren't good plans at all. Right. A a lot of talk within Stoicism of not depending on chance or fortune, as we won't always be on the good ends of that, right? I think, yeah, Seneca has a line about, you know, treating fortune as if everything that is within her power will come to pass. Uh, That involves realizing that, you know, we live in a pretty uncertain world and to manage that uncertainty, we need to, uh, you know, be, be prepared. And that involves explicit, explicit reasoning and thinking. Mm-hmm. And with the increased planning, increase just mindfulness of what we're doing, that should lead us to experience a better outcome or increase our expectations of acquiring some sort of value, desired end. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think it, it, it definitely increases your chances of success. Um, it can increase your um, sense of gratitude for what you have now. And I think there's also an aspect to the practice where, well, as you do, um, you know, as you imagine outcomes you might initially think are quite bad, you might realize, oh, they aren't quite as bad as I initially believed. So a personal example for this, uh, for me, would be most people having some initial fear of public speaking. You know, as, as you imagine yourself giving a speech and, you know, suppose things went poorly. Now there's the question, you know, like, how bad would that be? And often I find that it really wouldn't be as bad as I initially believed. You know, my initial initial judgment about how bad I would feel after a given presentation was received poorly. Good. And that comes with the willingness to take chances, the willingness to expand, as there's a lot of talk within Stoicism about taking on roles that in one sense of life, we might be called or feel a calling or otherwise feel appropriate to take on some responsibility in some position. And if we can master some virtues, we can transfer skills from one area to another, we can take on challenges and perhaps excel in areas where we think we wouldn't. I think that this goes back to the idea about thinking about things in terms of maximizing your expected value and you know not so much thinking about the actual outcomes of things and as you do that you might realize okay some of the most important things for me to do are to build 
these aspects of my character, like being courageous, um, being able to apply wisdom. Um, and these uh, virtues are useful for a number of different uh, roles. Um, and, you know, being able to improve those virtues in yourself um, is intrinsically rewarding and occasionally also uh, relieves, uh, results in external payoff as well. It's a strength of the philosophy, I think. It was past guest Massimo Piliucci who wrote in his book that he found it to be a big tent philosophy that people can come from all situations in life and find something valuable from the Stoic tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think whether you have a religious background or not, whether you have uh, some pol political orientation or another, there is a lot of wisdom in the Stoic tradition. And there's also quite a lot of overlap with Stoicism and other traditions as well. Right. I mentioned um, so, Buddhism yeah. for sure. I think there's like some useful overlaps in, between Christianity and Stoicism. Mm -hmm. You know, the, this idea that a number of religious uh, people hold that, you know, there's a reason for everything. You know, whether, whether this is, you know, true in the metaphysical sense is... You know, that's a debatable question. But this sort of approach to seeing the positive upsides to tragic events and hardships is uh, something that I think that both Christianity and Stoicism share quite deeply. Right. How to respond to the nature of the world that is suffering mm -hmm. is a big thing in Stoicism. Is what in the ancient times, it was much more likely that people would die of illness or there would be some exile or all kinds of things that today perhaps we take for granted. Oh, well, hey, we, we get to live to this much later age and our scenario is probably pretty stable in that there isn't going to be this big war that's going to break out in our country. Yeah, 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 that seems right. I think that, I, and even though it is true that the ancient Stoic philosophers lived in much more turbulent times you know, like even 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 though you know, Seneca was one of the richest men of his time, it's not obvious to me that I would you know want to switch places with him, uh, even even you know on material material grounds. You know, the the world has just uh, advanced so much, uh, and we are like so, so much more comfortable mm -hmm. uh, in general. But you know, even though that is true, all of us will face hardships and severe tragedies. Some of our most important projects, most important relationships, there is. I think a lot of value in returning to some of these, these core stoic ideas uh, when those hardships and tragedies arise. And there's even more value in building up the, the character to handle them before they arise. Right. Good. And it's undergoing quite a modern revival with online communities, modern authors. Why do you think this is the case? This tradition from ancient Greece and Rome now in 2019? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that is not something I have an exceptionally confident view on. But if I were to take a guess, my general sense is that I come from a background uh, in meditation and philosophy. And if I think about, okay, you know, what drew me to stoicism over, um, say, this sort of general worldviews that emphasize mindfulness, I think that Stoicism has, you know, a very comprehensive worldview. So it's not merely about focusing on mindfulness throughout one's day, 
or say focusing on dealing with hardship via you know similar practices like cognitive behavioral therapy, but includes uh, an entire world uh, an entire worldview. So not only are there these different exercises or practices, but there's an emphasis on a very specific ethic, you know, building uh, these you know specific virtues. So you know that's I think that's one hypothesis I put forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think another claim is just that the writings of the original Stoics are just I mean really so sublime. I think that the popularity of Stoicism will wax and wane. But these, a lot of these, you know, core Stoic philosophers uh, will certainly withstand uh, the uh, tests of time, <laughs> just because uh, the ideas are, you know, fundamentally true. Right, and I see a lot of overlap within circles talking about minimalism, frugality, financial independence. A lot of themes within Stoicism calling us, as we talked about, to reduce our desires, to not spend so much, to use our money well, and to be happy with having less. Yeah, that's a good point. So I suppose, you know, speculating a little bit is there's a general trend towards, I suppose I would say something like increasing optionality in one's career. So a lot of people might think I'll go to school and I'll have a number of different options about careers I can take. Then after that, I will choose a career and just advance through that career, continue to go higher and higher on a given ladder or status game. You know, there's a lot of, I think optionality is not quite the right word. I think the the word I want to say is something a little bit closer to um, ideas related to, you know, this this hedonic treadmill where you more and more things, though today what that probably looks like is accumulating more and more status-oriented goods, you know, whether it's a particular career, particular office, a particular kind of accomplishment. And I think that over time, people realize that this sort of thing is empty. Mm-hmm. Life isn't about status. You know, status is one of the very first things that uh, Epictetus mentions is out of our control in the handbook. It's, you know, something that's external, something that we should be indifferent to. And because of that, you might see trends like frugality, minimalism, and uh, stoicism uh, pushing back. Right. A a simpler lifestyle of just being more careful with the spending and just having a more stable future. A lot of stress people undergo living paycheck to paycheck or being broke and it's more difficult there, right? So if people can step back and say, well, maybe I don't need that expensive dinner and maybe I don't need to spend as much on alcohol or maybe I don't need this fancy new gadget or all of these really expensive clothes, I can be happy with something simpler. That's fine by me. Yeah, yeah. So I guess on one level, there's the aspect, you know, do people find achieving status goods ultimately fulfilling? And then on the other level, there's the question, I I think the answer to that is no. But, you know, there's also the phenomenon where by pursuing these status-oriented goods, people end up harming themselves. Mm -hmm. So in your example, consuming much more than they need to. And, you know, the fact that they think they need a larger TV, a larger house, uh, means, you know, that they'll need to spend more money. And because they'll need to spend more money, they will, you know, be stressed. They'll need to find a better job. And, you know, and then once they have that better job, they'll have friends that now make more money and causes lots of stress in other areas in, uh, in one's life. Right. A recurring theme in the Stoic texts about wondering about what is it that we have to do? What must be exchanged for what, I think, is the, the line in that if you want all of these nice things, what are you going to have to do to get there? What is the labor 
that you're going to put in. How many hours of work do you need to buy that Lamborghini, right? <laughs> Couldn't you just yeah, be yeah. much happier with a used car that runs really well? What is the, the big gain that you're going to get from this thing? And it's also a, a phrase from the Stoics, under a thatched roof lies slavery. This is a reason why Seneca in particular advised avoiding the trappings of prosperity, which was you know quite salient for him, given that he was quite wealthy. And this involves foregoing particular material goods, the cheapest food, perhaps fasting, and also foregoing a lot of the status type goods wearing just like you know god-awful clothing <laughs> yeah. uh, social events when you do that you can the you know the value that i assigned to these these things is was much more uh much more than they are worth ultimately right it, it puzzles me to this day of people talking about having a nice meal and spending all this money when they can instead just spend less and have something nice anyway. It was a promotion recently. I went to a place, Texas Roadhouse here in Pennsylvania, where it was a free appetizer. All you had to do was just download an app and show them their website, go in and eat for free. But meanwhile, people were just spending like $50 on a steak. It's like, uh, no, no, thanks. No, not for me. I'm, I'm happy here with this amount and not having to spend the money. The, the taste of free is is definitely for me. And with that, there are even warnings in the Stoic text not to be involved with the practice of butchery. There's some animal welfare concerns in the text, too. I think that there's an interesting view some Stoics have, which on the animal welfare thing, which is, so we, you know, we have an idea we haven't quite touched on yet, which is that if one is a Stoic, one must live according to nature. You know, there's a question, you know, what does that mean? Some people interpret this claim as the idea what is natural is what is good or what occurred in the past is what is morally good. Both of these ideas seem strike me as a, a little bit you know, unjustified. So in particular, that's a live question for me when I think about you know, how animals are treated, which tends to be you know, quite poorly. The recourse to humans are natural carnivores uh i think i think is questionable mm -hmm. and I, I see it as often a matter of reducing harm that well instead of eating that steak perhaps i can find something adequate on the menu that's a vegetarian or a vegan option so why would i want to participate in that suffering that animals experience the environmental harm and perhaps the health risks for me as well it seems like often what one consumes is under one's control and the fact that animals tend to be treated quite poorly and factory farms, I think, a push is a pretty strong consideration to consider these, uh, you know, plant-based options when one has the, the option to do so. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of reducing the amount of suffering, uh, whether that happens to humans or non-human animals. You have an app, Stoa. Can you tell listeners about that? Stoa combines the philosophies of mindfulness meditation and Stoicism. So, you know, as I was practicing meditation, I found it lacked a comprehensive worldview. And for me, the worldview that was exceptionally useful was uh, Stoicism and these ideas of the core 
uh, disciplines. As I use particular meditation apps, I found myself wishing that a thing like this existed in the world where I could listen to stoic exercises, uh, listen to mindfulness meditations along with stoic quotes and stoic themes. And then it occurred to me that, you know, no one had built this thing and that given my background in philosophy and programming, I should be the person who, you know, it's up to me to bring into the world. Stoa is uh, the result of that general idea and that, that general motivation. And you can find it on the App Store or the Google Play Store. It includes you know, hours of stoic meditations, quotes, and a journal. We're adding, adding new content each month. All right. Very good. Anything else that you would like to add? I suppose if people would like to follow me, they can follow me on Twitter uh, at Caleb M. Ontiveros. Um, I'd also be especially happy to hear uh, feedback or experiences people have with Stoa. Great. And can you spell that out for our listeners, how they're to find you online? So my name for Twitter is C-A-L-E-B-M Ontiveros, O-N-T-I-V-R-O-S, then Stoa, S-T-O-A, at stoameditation.com. All right. Very good. And that's where they can send email to you. Yes. And you find my contact information on that page. All right. Thanks for appearing today. Good discussion. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content, especially a second podcast project in weeks to come, which will focus on credit cards, deals, and travel for next to no cost. I'll be at Stoicon 2019 in Athens, Greece, thanks to the wonderful benefits which come with credit cards. Round trip flight and five night hotel stay paid for with points. See my website for a credit card questionnaire where you can answer questions to be guided in the right direction. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com where you can email me, connect with me on social media, find past episodes, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work through Patreon, PayPal, the Cash App, and referral links by visiting the Donate tab on my website. Podcast music, used with permission, is brought to you by Phil Giordana's symphonic metal group, Fairyland, from their album, Score to a New Beginning. John Bartman offered free consultation and audio edits for episodes 51 through 63. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. Have a great day.